I'd like to introduce tonight's moderator, our favorite moderator, Mr. Joe Matthews. Joe is a fourth-generation Californian who writes about his home state and its politics, media, labor, and real estate as New America Foundation's Irvine Senior Fellow. He is the co-author, with Mark Paul, of California Crack-Up, How Reform Broke the Golden State and How We Can Fix It. Joe is a contributing writer for the Los Angeles Times, lead blogger at NBC's California site, Prop Zero, and a contributor to The Daily Beast. He appears regularly on radio and TV as an expert on all things California. Most importantly, he is Socolow Public Square's California editor. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Joe Matthews. Thank you very much, Dulce. I want to, to uh, thank our colleagues at Zocalo, to my colleagues at the New America Foundation, and especially to our friends at the Lane Center, Laura Ma, John Christensen, Thad Kauser, for their incredible patience and, and determination and hard work um, over the last few months to make this evening possible. To begin, and, and we should get started, um, a friend of some of the people in this room is a man named Tim Hodson. Um, who died yesterday of brain cancer. He was a long time, uh, worked in the legislature and directed the Center for California Studies at Sacramento State. And before he died, he sent a poem to the Sacramento Bee with instructions to have it published after he died about the state of California, about which he was frustrated with. And one stanza sort of relates to tonight's conversation published today. I, I would sincerely like to know when our putative leaders decided that California was puny, petty, not worth serious thought or effort, that our people, our riches, our promise are all so unworthy of effort or thought. Well, Tim, tonight we are thinking not small, but very, very big. We've got big thinkers, young thinkers, thinking about a big issue. What, what is this government 2.0? How can government be a platform um, for a lot of the things we want? How it can connect us uh, to our government, to each other, um, with the goals of greater democracy, engagement, better services. So I, I want to uh, sort of, you know, that's a big task for us, and we've got a lot of people to get in this conversation, so we're going to get right to it. I want to start with April Manat, who is the author of a, a, a new report uh, from New America, uh, support from the Lane Center, um, called Hear Us Now, which is a survey of the state of sort of government uh, 2.0. Um, uh, here in California. She's really a, one of our state's leading experts on how local government has worked, um, uh, is the author of one of my favorite publications, What's So Special About Special Districts? And she's available for a conversation about mosquito abatement at the end of the evening. She's done, uh, provided policy and legal advice to the California State Legislature for nine years. Um, uh, she's a senior consultant with Blue Sky Consulting, a, a principal of the April Manette of, of her own firm. And I want to start by asking you, you know, there are a lot of governments in California, 5,000. How far have they gotten? I mean, what is the picture in terms of, you know, using technology as kind of to, to do these kinds of things and engagement and, and, and service improvement? Um, you know, what, and what specific kinds of things are governments doing in California? Well, California, being a diverse state, its governments are diverse counties, cities, special districts, schools, redevelopment agencies, and whatnot. Um, they, they are exploring technology and experiencing it in lots of different ways. Some are quite savvy and sophisticated, certainly in this area where we're located now, many of them far along and into some very, very innovative projects. But I'm happy to say even in the far-flung regions of the state uh, where the population is low, um, 
they, they are at least dipping a toe in the waters and you know, are starting up with their websites, trying to connect people to their government, um, let them access it, become more transparent, access documents, and even interact um, via polls and social media. So I think what we're finding are um, lots of different ways that local governments are going about this. In the report, I talk about it in terms of three different tiers. There's sort of a baseline level of technology, which you know, won't shock anyone in this room in terms of basic websites with access to basic information to people 24-7 um, uh, so that people can at least know who their governing bodies are and have a, a, a basic outline about what they're doing, when they're doing it, how to come to the council meeting, how to submit comments. Then there's sort of a tier two level, which is a more, a more deep and profound engagement of people, trying to draw them in trying to uh, familiarize themselves with the priorities and the plans and the overall goals and uh, directions that the local governments are working in and also elicit from them some feedback as far as how, where do they think the economic development of the city ought to go, for example, or what services are most important to them at the special district level, um, or how can we keep kids in school and keep them safe. Um, so, uh, again, a little bit more profound, a little bit more interactive in terms of engaging the citizen and getting the citizen's idea and direction about where to go. And then there's sort of a third level that's really the more innovative um, paradigm-shifting democratization with uh, participatory government, allowing people to have their say as to not only what the solutions are, but what are the problems? What are the problems we want addressed? Let's, as a community, gather together in, in person and online and uh, explore the problems that we care about, throw them up for a vote, and then start talking about solutions and, and approaching it from both a governmental perspective and a non-governmental perspective. And in those instances, a lot of the governments are being helped by private nonprofit organizations who are working on some very innovative concepts with open government and participatory democracy. Is there an example or two, particularly of that, that third tier, that high, that, that more innovative tier that you talked about? A couple of examples of sure. what that looks like? I think the open data movement is a good one. Um, that's something that is going on in a number of communities now, San Francisco being the first one that I happen to come across, in terms of taking public data and giving it to the public. That doesn't sound that innovative, and yet, shockingly, it is. I certainly remember from my time in state government, state government wasn't always able to get public data from other branches of state government. And so, even in the course of my own professional working career, this concept of public data being given to the public is new and sadly innovative. But now, so you see something like Data SF, you know, having 200 different data sets, they throw it up online, the people can access it, the people can create apps and slice it and dice it in a way that makes sense to them, to them so they can understand their community. They can link it through social media and hopefully provide some sort of political and social change to solve their own community problems. It's something that some of these panelists have worked on and you'll probably hear more about. Is, how, do, how are these things evaluated? I mean, how do, are there, have there been evaluations of these different these different attempts at different tiers? How, how is success measured in this world? Well, success uh, with, with quantifiable measures and metrics can be difficult in governance sometimes. I mean, you can see how many people linked your website and clicked here or clicked there. I mean, you can see things like that, but that's not really getting, I think, at the question of, is this a successful experiment that we've done either on the civic engagement side or the service improvement side? 
Now, in some instances, um, there, are, there are some quantifiable things that we can point to. Um, Northern California County uses um, first video conferencing and soon to be Skype in their area, which is rugged and mountainous with snow. And they can actually point to use of that kind of technology, reducing their need for staff, um, saving them times in terms of personnel, driving and, you know, emergency response if something goes terribly wrong. So we see uh, attempts to quantify it like that in terms of savings on the, on the local government side. Um, as far as convenience to people, you know, there's certainly anecdotal stories and things that just make sense. It's, it's easier for you to uh, access your website, your government's website, than to wait till Monday morning and try and call and figure out who's going to fill that pothole. It's great if you can just, you know, snap it on your iPhone and send it on in. It gets routed to the direct person and, you know, they send you an update when it's been clarified. So it's, um, the, the measurements and the metrics are not always there. They are sometimes there. And I think they're worth developing because they will give people confidence, they will give government officials confidence, and I think that will drive m more acceptance of technology in local government and also help provide for funding and support. One quick last question because I want to bring in the rest of the group, but did you find in, in, your, in your study of this that the different California governments knew what each other were doing? Um, I would say there's not a good central repository for local government officials to know what other local government officials are attempting or succeeding with or failing with. Uh, in, the, in the technology world, the private nonprofit sector, um, you know, there's lots of information sharing, you know, constant information sharing and updates and people know stories and they hear stories, but for, um, for, for governments and for folks maybe who've been in governments for a number of decades, I, I did not find a good central repository such that there would be good information sharing about what the options are and what somebody's experience were. Yeah, they, might, they might see a panel at a conference, so they might get a little information, or they might read a news account and maybe follow up with you know, the fire chief and San Ramon to hear about the CPR app. So, but there's no good one-stop one shopping, and that might be helpful for, for, for the... In the, in the local government community itself to have a place, a safe place where they can go with other local <laughs> governments to share information. <laughs> it sounds, well, let's, that's a perfect note to bring in Greg Herman, um, who is a senior analyst for, uh, for the city manager in Carlsbad, California, coming, making the trip north for us. Um, uh, he specializes in implementing technology solutions that save money, improve service, provide increased access to information, and is focused on the idea of on-demand government, this utilizing apps to allow people to interact with government on their schedule. Um, he's also previously worked here in the city of Palo Alto and also in, in San Luis Obispo, I think, for a bit. So you've seen the, the coast of the state up and down. Well, let me ask you, as someone who's been in these cities, when do you, and under what conditions do you decide to make a move and, and, try, and try one of these things? And... And, and what sort of things have you done? Right, great question. Uh, let me start off by saying I think this is the most exciting space to be in for local government and for governments. I, I feel very privileged to be uh, in this spot and there's lots and lots of things going on. As you mentioned, uh, as we look at governments, we look at the size and scope of governments and we have a chance to 
rethink uh, and redesign how they might operate, there's huge opportunity uh, to not only save money, but also to deliver on better services and open up access to information for, for those folks. I think generally uh, what you'd find, not always, is that these technology projects are started either because of political will or a business imperative. And so uh, you've got an elected representative that really would like to see that app out there. Or you uh, have a business imperative where you've got a significant financial shortfall and you need to find a new way to do this. It's not always the case, but generally speaking, I think it falls into one of those two categories. On the business imperative side of things, uh, you know, what it takes is an internal champion inside of that organization that is aware of the technology solutions that are out there, but is equally aware of what some of the inefficiencies are and opportunities within those organizations to implement those technologies. And that can be the CIO, the CTO of the organization, it can be the city manager of the organization, but it also can be an internal staff member who has that knowledge. Uh, I, I think that you know, the, the title of today's forum is, you know, can technology save local government? Well, certainly not on its own, but it's a powerful tool and it's a transformative tool. Uh, I've had the opportunity to work on a number of different projects in this area and see how it can change how employees feel about the work they do and how communities and how residents feel about the community that they're a part of. Uh, one project, yeah, for example, yeah, yeah in, in particular, I think was really powerful was we did an online performance dashboard where we took the highest level priorities that the city council had identified and put those up online so everyone could see those. But what was most important is that we broke them down into the meaningful day-to-day -day actions that a city would need to accomplish in order to deliver on those high-level priorities. And each one of those day-to-day -day actions had a target, had a benchmark, had regular reporting interval intervals, and that information was pushed up and available to the public. And in uh, some of the events that we had around it and working with the different members of the public, the opportunity for them to see not only the high-level vision and how well we were doing at achieving that high-level vision, but also, hey, what are the day-to-day -day ground floor steps that we need to be doing, and how are we doing on those to get to that level? Now, was that in Carlsbad or in Palo Alto? That was, that was in Palo Alto. Oh, right here in Palo Alto. Right here in Palo Alto. And what kind, of, what kind of specific things were on those lists that showed up on your dashboard? Yeah, great, great question. So, you know, a couple of the priorities from that year, and this was a couple of years ago, was uh, financial health. Right? Mm. And so financial health, that's a broad, big topic. How do we know what that means? How do we define that out into our day-to-day -day work? One thing that you might see on that is that um, the budget stabilization reserve. So how much money is in that account to make sure that uh, the city is prepared to weather the storms of, of, of future economic problems or perils? And so an ability to show at a very, in a very clear and simple way exactly what that level was charted over year to year. There's a goal associated with maintaining that and being able to display that. Another one might be environmental sustainability. Again, a big, big broad topic. Well, if you were to move through on, on that dashboard site and see some of the day-to-day -day steps, you'd see one of them is diversion from landfills. So what is the rate at which we're diverting waste away from the landfill? What are our targets? Where do we need to go? And how do we chart a course to get there? So that's an example. It, 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 doing things that way, can you, can you show a direct correlation between some of this use of technology and and saving money. I, one of the things in our communication before this you mentioned is you could, you could, you could show that giving an elected official an iPad can save $1,000 a year. Right. Prove that. <laughs> okay, here we go. Do we have any elected officials out here? <laughs> By chance. Okay. So just, just really, really yeah. quick, and, and these are sort of conservative numbers, but right. uh, you know, uh, 
elected officials receive in most uh, public agencies a packet of reports for every one of their public meetings. Um, these packets of reports can be extremely uh, large, and some of you might know uh, a little bit about this. I, I wanted to bring one as an example, but I was afraid it would put me over my weight limit for the luggage. Um, and, and these reports, on average, can cost $35 to $50 per report, right? Each time that that public agency meets to do the printing cost to assemble all of those reports. Public agencies can have between five and nine different people receiving those individual reports and can meet anywhere between two and four times per year. When you start to do the math, you can see that conservatively on printing costs per elected official, you're spending between $1,200 and $1,500. On top of that, typically elected officials are given either a laptop or a computer, so there's a cost associated with that on top of things. Once you're able to put an iPad into their hands, cover a data package, and electronically deliver those documents to those, it completely cuts out those direct costs of the printing and helps to save on some of the equipment and hardware costs as well. So get your local, Christmas is coming, get your local school board member or city councilman an iPad. Um, thank you. Thank you very much, Greg. I, I want to bring in uh, Dakin Sloss, who um, has come all the way to us here from Stanford. Uh, we're a senior studying physics, mathematics, and philosophy. Um, he's interested in the philosophical underpinnings of quantum mechanics and alternative approaches to quantum theory. Um, but that stuff's simple. So now he, what he's doing is he's looking at something really complicated, the California governing system. Um, and he's the executive director of California Common Sense, which is a Stanford-based nonprofit using technology to open government finances to the public, engage citizens, and really catalyze the grassroots movement for more effective governance. Now, um, you're, so you're out there trying to get data and, and do things with it and provide it to the public in a way that makes sense. You know, someone who's trying to get the data gather it and make it usable. How good are California, is California government at sort of releasing data and putting it out there also in a form that's most, you know, useful? Um, not the best. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of reticence um, to release information to nonprofits, to other organizations that are re release, uh, requesting information through public records requests and things like that. Um, which is unfortunate because once the data is out there, it can be really helpful both for employees within government and for people outside of government that are trying to identify better ways we could be doing things. Um, but there are a lot of good people out there that are trying to release that data, um, and as that data comes out, we make it available. Now you, I, I, somewhat recently, you asked the state of California, correct, for essentially how it spent its money, all its different expenditures of money. What, what did you Basically discover a, in that process? A checkbook uh, is what we were looking for, the California State Checkbook. Um, and our request was denied after three or four months of going through this public records request process, which is quite a process, and if you don't actually have a legal team behind you, can get quite laborious, and even with a legal team, you quite often don't get what you want. But at the end of the day, they told us that we cannot have that information because it did not serve the public interest to disclose those records, which, as you can imagine, we thought was quite ironic. Uh, but basically, uh, it turns out California doesn't seem to keep track of individual expenditures at that level in some sort of electronic system. Their accounting system is 30 years old. Um, it's actually, I think it's in, what, what, it's in some really old language that I don't even know. Older um, than you. <laughs> and no, no one will be able to program or maintain it like five years from now. Um, 
So the data is not even being tracked in many cases in the way that it should be, and it's a real shame because it would be really useful to the people um, of California and the people who are maintaining the government and trying to make it work better. So what, what form, I mean, when you go do this, doing this work with, with California Common Sense, what, let's think about sort of an ideal, an improvement. What, what should be the standard when, when governments have data? I mean, what format should it be and how open, what, what would you like to see? My vision is that 10 years from now, every government in real time will be tracking everything that it's spending, everything that it's bringing in, what outcomes that's leading to, and that that will be streaming in real time up to servers that people outside of government and inside of government can slice and dice however they want and see it. So I, I have a pretty high standard. Is there any institution, government or non-government, that you've encountered that does that or comes, particularly one that comes closest to that? Um, no, it, it, it's a new way of thinking about how data is maintained by institutions. And there's obviously very interesting discussions about should corporations be held to those same standards as governments. Um, cool. Well, thank, thank you. Um, um, it's a good moment to bring in Tim uh, Bonneman, um, who's not wearing a jacket, excellent, uh, in the light blue shirt here. Um, yes, um, he's the founder, president, and CEO of Intellitix, which is a participation startup based in San Jose. Um, provides consulting technology and services that enable organizations in the public, private, and nonprofit sector to uh, reach better decisions by engaging constituents in high-quality online consultations. He's uh, started Intel Intellitix in uh, 2008. Um, he's deeply involved in participatory democracies, even out there and uh, down at Ac Occupy San Jose, um, tangling with the police a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Privately, he's he's out there, um, and um, and. You know, Tim, um, um, the, the late uh, senator, uh, political scientist, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, you know, is said to have said, uh, citizen engagement is the device whereby public sector officials induce non-public individuals to act in the way public officials desire. Now, um, let me, as someone who, who looks at this, you study engagement, how can you tell the difference, in, in this, particularly in this technological world, between tech, when between when we were using technology to do, you know, to bring real authentic engagement and participation, and when can you tell that it's, how do you tell that it, it's not really authentic? And where, where is that dividing line? That is a, is a great question. It is, it is, it is still an ongoing um, um, search, I guess, but there are some indicators that you would um, look at. Um, for, for quality participation, meaning bringing the people that are affected by a decision into the decision-making process. It's about being um, clear on what the expectations are, what the decisions will be, um, and, um, and following through. Um, so there are some in, in indicators that you would look at. Um, of course, the late senator is right that oftentimes uh, it is not handled in the, in the proper way, and you, you see um, cases where uh, it's a sham engagement, right, tokenistic, um, you know, here's some engagement, and then we're going to decide what we're going to, what we wanted to decide anyway. Um, but in a, in, a, in a proper process, um, you couldn't really do that because you would set those expectations up front. You would say, here's the process that we're going to follow, and here are the decision-making points, and here's the kind of impact that the participants will have, and sometimes that can be very significant, and sometimes that can be very small, depending on um, certain factors, because maybe other decisions have already been made, or um, you know, there's there, there's ranges of, of impact that participants can have. But a good process would make that clear upfront, 
and then you can you can you know hold them accountable, and uh, that's you know, usually what a good process looks like. In in looking over the, sort of the government 2.0 universe in California, are there there processes that you think are really you know affecting effectively where engagement is effective and authentic things that you think are you know potential models. Yeah, I mean there have been. I mean it's. Public participation is not necessarily new. It's been it's been going on for a few decades. Um, local government has been doing participation um, in all kinds of areas, whether it's urban planning or land use issues or um, sometimes local policies or, or budgets. Um, it's just fairly recently that we're seeing the use of technology come in, which I think brings in a lot of great opportunities to just broaden and deepen the um, the engagement with the public and make it more convenient, more accessible. Um, at the end of the day, it still comes down to a good process, whether you use it, you know, use the internet or you just use a face-to-face -face event. Um, you know, it still has to be, and it still has to follow the good any, process. Do you have any fear that, you know, if if technology is the the tool of engagement, you know, you get into the sort of kind of di digital divide area that you know that you know. The, in wealthier places, people have a lot of access to technology. They get even better. They're more engaged in yeah. better services. I mean, absolutely, certainly. You want to you want to keep an eye out for this for this issue, and it's it is still an issue, and it can still be an issue for a community that's very well off and has a lot of um, connectivity. You might still not have those last twenty percent of people online, but that's why you start out with the uh, when planning such um, participatory exercises. You start out with you know what are the objectives, and who you're trying to reach, who has to be involved. And you might end up not relying on technology so much. Maybe you go to the neighborhoods, community meetings, you set up those uh, local face-to-face um, -face, uh, get-togethers, and you, 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 know, you mix it up in, in different ways. Other situations, you know, it may not be an issue. You know? Or, in some cases, it may be the only option. If you have a distributed um, um, you know, population, which can happen quickly, even in a city or a, a region, if you have like a water issue or something like that, then... You might still have to do your face-to-face -face meetings, but you're only going to reach a very small uh, number of people that way. So you definitely want to think about adding uh, uh, online tools to, to, to get a broader audience. Cool. Thank you. Um, let me finally bring in David, David B. Smith. Uh, Mr. Smith comes to us from Washington, uh, but he is a, he's a Californian uh, from the Central Coast. and with roots all the way to the gold rush, we discovered, in the, in the green room. Um, he's executive director of the National Conference on Citizenship, uh, uh, founded in 1946, chartered by Congress in 1953. Um, defines modern, modern citizenship through tracking, measuring, and promoting civic engagement with the goal of building a more informed, engaged, giving, and trusting uh, citizenry. And before he was at uh, the National Conference on Citizenship, he founded and directed something called Mobilize.org, um, which is a national organization that improves democracy by investing in millennial-led solutions. None, our Gen X solutions aren't any good, I guess. Um, but um, I, I want to get the national perspective and, and try to put California in context, because we've had this very California-centric conversation. You know, you know we're, you, you've, you've seen the reports. You, you, um, uh, NCOC has a report on civic engagement in California called Golden Governance, which is just out now, goldengovernance.org. How is California doing you know, in, in measures of engagement. Are we, you know, we, we, in so many governance areas, we're seen as a follower, not a leader, or, you know, or, or, you know the guy you don't want to talk to who should be shunted off to the corner of the room. How are we doing when it comes to this kind of governance? 
Well, I think overall, when we look at when we look at issues related to civic health uh, of communities, uh, California uh, is certainly in, in in the back of the herd when it comes to states and and communities across the country. Um, but when you start to look at states of similar size, we actually do pretty well. We 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 are um, uh, doing a, and I say we because I feel like thank you better than I the Texans, better than the Floridians, better than, Texans, better than the New Yorkers. Than, exactly, okay. exactly. Um, <laughs> and particularly, there's been some trends in recent years, and we've started to see that increase. Um, and and I think a. a what, what, we're, what we're very interested in is looking at California as a laboratory, uh, because I think that the current financial crisis really presents an opportunity where we can test a lot of these new types of governance, really a new government paradigm shift here in, in California. That's really what the new report, Golden Governance, is about, um, is how do we uh, uh, look to citizens as really assets within communities. And I think that some of the most innovative things that we've seen have been coming throughout California. We have a few stories that come from Hawaii or Indianapolis or others, but a lot of them are coming from California. Um, and uh, although they haven't quite reached scale yet, I think that they are, um, we have some very in innovative laboratories here. I mean, um, April's written about um, this experience in the San Ramon Valley Fire Protection District where you know, they've got an app where people are CPR certified to sign up and there's 40,000 people signed up and if there's a medical emergency, a heart attack or something near you, you get a notice on your iPhone and you can respond, perhaps faster than a paramedic. Is, are there other places in the country that are, you know, are doing, are we, is it fair to say we're a leader in that kind of thing? Are you seeing a lot of these things elsewhere in the country? No, I do. I do think I do think California is leading in that in, in that space. Um, there are, I think, New York might be a close second, if not actually. I mean, I'm, I'm more of a West Coast guy, so sure. I'll say yeah, we're yeah. leading in it. But I think the New Yorkers would say otherwise. Um, Bloomberg has done a lot in this in New Bloomberg's York City. Bloomberg's done some amazing things, and there's this whole group around uh, uh, Gov 2.0 and uh, Tech President and, and Personal Democracy Forum um, that have gone out and invested in a number of different tools. C Click Fix is one of them, which uh, April actually mentioned a bit where you can just walk out into your community and you can snap, and Bloomberg's done this in, in New York, where you can snap a photo of, of something that you want fixed in your, uh, in your city, be it a, a pothole or a broken light or something, and then it gets rerouted directly to the person who's responsible. Um, and you're starting to see that work in other, in other cities. The same way that San Ramon um, created this, this brilliant app that really looks to citizens not only as assets, but as heroes in waiting. I mean, it really looks to citizens as, um, you know, we can save lives in our communities and probably a more effective way than our governance, government can, um, and particularly as we're starting to pull back on, on resources for, uh, for a lot of these public services, how do we look to citizens as part of that solution, um, or maybe even perhaps the solution? Um, and I think that we're, we're starting that, and, and, and what I commend the folks from San Ramon about is that they're also thinking about it in a way of building that platform and making it open source so that communities all across California and really all across the country can use uh, similar technology, and I think that's where that's really where I think we can lead um, as a state. Let me ask a sort of cynical question, a reporter's question. So in, both in your report and, and in, the, in the Here Us Now report, there's this strong note of um, you know, this budget crisis, which never seems to lift from us in California. You know, it's an opportunity. You know, it, it, you know this technology gives us an, a chance to, to you know, kind of do more with less. Um, which you know comes to some ears can sound like the sort of corporate justification for outsourcing and cutbacks and the like. Should we worry that you know is there any that, that sort of embrace of this becomes a becomes a you know a path to to downsizing? I mean, when you 
when you put lots of data out, you know, out and make it publicly available, right, the people who may be best positioned to, um, to exploit that are people with money, companies that can, you know, assemble it and do things with it and make money with it, maybe violate people's privacies in the process. I mean, how big a concern should that, should that be? I think what the opportunity is here, um, I, I, think, I think you raise, you raise a good, good concern. I, I think what the opportunity is, is if we can come together as communities to identify really what we want to have accomplished with our public services in a way where citizens are involved in that discussion and are really part of that solution, I think regardless of who ultimately steps forward and builds the app or makes the, you know, makes the, tech, you know, makes the, the data uh, available for folks, um, it provides an opportunity for people to really roll up their sleeves and be part of something that has been growingly something that we've either abdicated power, where people have just stopped, and this is, this, this is what the, the shocking numbers of civic health in California are telling us, is that people have basically said, no, we're kind of fed up or don't feel like there's any value in being involved in either state government or in many cases local government. Well, if we flip that around and say, well, the only way that we're going to solve any of these problems is if you actually do step up in some sort of way, either be part of a local community council that identifies what are those priorities or, or part of the people who actually start building apps on top of it, I think it's a great opportunity for, for changing, uh, you know, changing the, the power structure from moving it from where elected officials are the people who solve problems to really our local governance, government officials are folks to bring people together to solve their own problems. And I think that that's the shift that we want to see. And that shift is going to require everyone of all, so, of, of all different uh, socioeconomic backgrounds to really be effective. Greg, when you, when in the cities you've worked with, data's been made available and, and, and you've done things. Who's, who's coming in from outside the government to use it? What does the universe of kind of people look like? Uh, I, I think it's really broad. You know, uh, we were just, April and I were just chatting before we walked through the doors. And, you know, when we were working on the uh, strategic planning visualization site, that was the... Um, the site that we referenced earlier, she mentioned that that was the first thing that she ran across when she was starting to do some of this work. I could have never imagined we built this uh, for the residents of Palo Alto and the community members of Palo Alto. And what we know from some of the analytics is that it was viewed all around the world. So I, th I think it's really, really broad in scope, and I think that's important. I think that's one of the main tenets of open source. Uh, and, I, and I think that that's, that's necessary and, and useful that uh, the information is made available, that it's out there, so that anyone who may be a community of interest, even if they may not uh, live within those bounds, has an opportunity to understand the information that's out there and possibly be a part of a solution. Um, thank you. A April, um, you, know, you, you, um, you interviewed people who do this work all over the state. Um, um, and you know, when I, in my own reading about Government 2.0, you sometimes hear this frustration that why isn't this being embraced more? There was a there was a survey done um, the National Association of State Chief Information Officers that you know they what were your top priorities for 2011? This was a survey done in 2010, and and you know Government 2.0, open government didn't even make the top 10 of the the CIOs. What is the the, the people are reluctant in this to? to do it, what is the reluctance? Is it money, is it, what is it? I don't know if it's really a reluctance based on money or fear as much as it is maybe just a lack of knowledge that, you know, there's, there's um, some people who've been in government for decades upon decades maybe don't um, have access to some of the cutting edge technology or familiarity with it as some of the, the new up and comers. And so part of it could be sort of a generational or, a, you know, a, a shift over time. 
I will say that when I went to, for example, the, the statewide meeting of the public information officers from lots of different local governments, the number one session had to be the social media and digital technology when people were crammed out the door, whereas other sessions were crickets. You know, so um, I was glad to see that. So people are in there and they're trying and they're trying things in interesting ways. They want to learn from each other. They want to know, they want to understand. They don't want to rush into something, particularly if they're going to be costly uh, software acquisitions or, you know, government takes time. They don't just wake up one day and say, hey, that sounds cool, let's do a mobile app and you know, we'll have it up and running by this weekend. For the most part, although you know, some, some governments, they can get it together. I know the city of Santa Cruz quickly got up its participatory democracy site that was involved with its um, budget deficit. I think that occurred over the process of a week. So you know, cer certain things can, can turn on a dime, but certain things are just gonna take longer, I think maybe in terms of changing the culture a little bit, making people feel comfortable, making, making them, um, giving them reassurances, as you brought up earlier, that this is not about downsizing or contracting everything out. This is about technology that we're embracing that will let us as an institution use our resources better and you know, provide, provide sort of a win-win. It's a win to us as a city um, we can figure out ways to save monies or work save money or work more effectively and and to the consumers as well of our services our citizens our residents our ratepayers that they can have access to better or more efficiently deliver, delivered service and briefly what was the what's the Santa Cruz budget uh, thing you mentioned I, I saw a couple raised eyebrows oh. in the audience when that was mentioned one of the, one of the things I talked about in the report was uh, the city of Santa Cruz and, and other other agencies have done this as well you know in confronting San Mateo County I believe did one of these um, confronting budget crises you know over the last several years in public agencies they kind of decided to crowdsource you know they threw it over to the people and said we, we have a problem we have a chronic ongoing problem people you know Tell us your thoughts. What do you want to do? Where, where do you think we should cut? Or how should we raise money? Or you know, wh what should we do? Where should our future be? And how are we going to solve this problem? And so they set up you know, online forums that people could submit um, suggestions about what the problem was and what potential solutions were. They tried to kind of bring some of the suggestions into the mainstream because, as you can imagine, they might have got a few um, really interesting kind of out there ideas. But what they did was allow the, the people themselves to vote on the suggestions and maybe, you know, getting rid of capitalism wasn't going to be the one that was going to solve the budget crisis. <laughs> so I, but, so I'm just, I think that was one of the suggestions. But anyway, that didn't get to be one of the top vote-getters. And they just said, we're only going to consider the top 10 vote-getters. And I know uh, in the city of Santa Cruz, they did get ideas. They got ideas that saved them money. And not only ideas for how to solve this year's budget deficit or kind of even to end chronic budget deficits, but also... They had people coming out to say, you know what, here's what our future should be. Here's where our priorities should be, and let's start heading down this road in the future and, and not going so much this other direction. So mm -hmm. in, in opening it to the people, they let people be part of you know, defining the problem, proposing the solutions, and then amongst themselves voting uh, on the top vote getters that eventually got the city's attention and some and got an action. the cannabis tax was top 10, top five, uh, top three. Yeah, I don't really recall <laughs> that film. Got it. Um, let me, this, this leads to a question for, for Dakin. Um, I mean, you're, you're gathering data, you're, you're, you're putting things out, trying to, 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 to put data and financial data out about the state of California and how your money's being spent and, and where it is. How do you build a, I mean, is there a natural audience for that? I mean, how do you plan to, I mean, I know you're still a fairly new organization. How do you plan to sort of build a, a community of people who are gonna contribute to that, consume that, act on that? 
I think everyone's an audience for that because we're all paying for it. Um, and most people are displeased about where it's going and that we keep paying more and getting less. Um, so we do a few different things. First, we aggregate data and we aggregate policy ideas from nonprofits around California. And then we put that up in visual interactive forms so that people can play with it, see the trade-offs. It's all about trade-offs at the end of the day. And then we're using social media. In about a month, we're going to be launching a civic engagement platform where people can share the stories they find about their local government, about their county government, about their state government, ultimately at the federal level as well, and have an integrated Facebook discussion all surrounding these policy discussion issues, or surrounding the data, surrounding the facts. And it serves as a new paradigm for what each of these little cities and counties are doing, happening in one whole community. And actually, people will be even able to take action, saying that they support doing something about an issue that they care about. And once enough people take action, elected officials will comment in a featured section. So you create a whole ecosystem where all the major stakeholders relevant to the data, um, and really what's affecting all of us at the end of the day, can get together and discuss and actually reach actionable solutions based on this. Is it social network going to have a name? Um, it's just up on our website. We're thinking about a name. Um, but it's part of Facebook. Think of it as a custom Facebook app, the Facebook app for politics, because right now you can go online and tell your aunt in Virginia that you like a picture of her cat, but you can't go tell your elected official that you think they should be doing something different with the money that you've given them. Um, I want to go to sort of a lightning round here, and feel free to jump in. Um, this is trying to make this an interactive event. Uh, the couple, these questions are, uh, were sent to me, uh, uh, direct messages over Twitter, in fact. So um, here's a question anyone wants to grab at it. Um, can you do big things in Government 2.0? I mean, a lot of the stuff, Government 2.0, they're often a very specific or narrow, tailored problem, the questioner asked. Um, you know, um, or does, you know, if you try to do big things, there's examples of big things, or, or is there a concern that if you, you know, you try to do big things in a really, you know, open process with a lot of engagement, you kind of slow things down, and when you slow things down too much in local government, you have a tendency to sort of empower the NIMBYs in a situation. Anyone want to have a I, go at that? I think you can do really big things, and I don't think it slows it down, it speeds it up. It allows citizens to demand that things work better. Um, and I think it brings voices into the process that represent our interests better. Because one of the biggest problems we have right now is our system is set up to serve special entrenched interests. And the average person, there, there's legitimately no reason for any of us to participate in the process right now because we could spend all of our time working for whatever issue we care about and there's very little chance you could do anything about it unless you have a lot of money. Um, and by going online, using technology, and aggregating people's voices, you can actually get effective solutions to all sorts of big problems. Anyone else want to have at that? I mean, I mean, you know, when you, when you open up things to comment, there's a tendency to the, you know, the White House opens something, you know, up for comment, and all the questions are about the people who are really excited are the marijuana folks, right? Well, that's so, actually, uh, that's that's the latest uh, uh, open government project by the White House. Uh, the um, we the people e-petition site, and yes, there are a lot of uh, you know uh, legalization advocates, but there is a long list of other issues that have to date not found this this uh, forum where they could be expressed. And this is actually I just read an article um, that said that's the major achievement. This is now a platform where people can you know once they reach you know five thousand or twenty five thousand signatures, they can make this 
a part of the, the discourse. And it's not just legalization. I mean, they are out there, but it's a long list of others. And I think that applies to, I, I guess, state and, 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 and local as well. I mean, give, give people access and give um, better visibility to some of the things that really are, um, you know, um, on people's minds. Just, just a quick comment on that. I think we can do big things, and I think one of the biggest things that we can do is changing the paradigm and changing the conversation so people are incentivized to participate. You know, the, the idea of the apps and the taking the pictures of the potholes is fantastic and a natural fit for smartphones, and it builds a goodwill and interaction amongst residents and governments. I think the real uh, magic of that is capitalizing on that goodwill to also, while they're inside of that application, make them aware of what some of the items are that are coming up on their uh, council meeting for that, uh, for that week. Give them an opportunity to solicit uh, or, or to give input and feedback on some of those. And so I think, I think that one of the biggest things we can do is, is build the incentive for people to participate so we can begin to use that information. Let me, um, another question I got multiple, from multiple people boiled down to a request for each of you, any of you, to be very specific about an idea that's out there. Maybe it's being used or should be used that that sort of hits, uh, I think you, I've heard you call this the sort of trifecta, the magic solution of it saves money, um, it, it improves service, and it increases engagement. I mean, what are the, what examples that sort of hit those three out there that, that local governments can do specifically? Go ahead, April. Well, there's and then one win-win-win. I don't know if it exactly yeah. fits that, but I think this is an example of a win-win-win. Um, the Rancho California Water District has a wireless telemetry project where they're measuring soil and salinity and weather data at various stations um, with the farming area. I think avocados and other kinds of farmers are involved in this area. And you know, with real-time smartphone apps, then they're, they're sending the information to the farmers who will know exactly how to water, um, how to get maximum crop yields, not to waste water. Um, not to waste resources and to do things right. And that is obviously great for the farmers, it's great for the district, and it's great for other people who might use that water for a better purpose than wasting it away and letting it run on the ground. So to me, that's a win-win-win. That's creating a positive externality that all of us can benefit from. And I think projects like that that will allow us to manage our resources better are fantastic for California and can get us away from you know, just a static conversation about should we raise money or cut services there's a whole conversation that can occur in the middle of this, which is how can we use what we have better? And I think projects like that are an example of using digital technology for that purpose. David? Yeah, the example I, I was going to use, um, which is a California-based example, that, that, that uh, California Volunteers, which um, is, is actually a, the, the head of California Volunteers is a secretary of, of, of volunteerism and service. We're actually one of the two states that have elevated somebody focused on public engagement and, and volunteerism up to a cabinet level position. Um, and they have this, this uh, program called Disaster Corps. Um, and I hope I'm not unveiling something that hasn't been released yet, but I know they have this, this uh, they've been working with Deloitte on a, on a back end um, that uh, allows you to register volunteers for disaster preparedness uh, purposes, anyone who's received really any type of training, any type of official training. Um, and what this uh, has created is this, is this database of, of people who speak various types of languages, who have done everything from filling, uh, uh, filling uh, sandbags to um, actually uh, uh, working on earthquake uh, response uh, um, to CPR train to any, any other uh, uh, type. And this database has moved it to, to, to an area where you where you can uh, understand where these high quality volunteers are throughout the state and deploy them when things come up. And so 
all you really, all they really need in terms of infrastructure is they, they divided the state, I think, up into nine or ten different districts, and each of these district there's one full-time volunteer uh, manager in the area, um, and they are able to respond to everything from fires to um, to earthquakes to all these other. I mean, we're we're, we're a state that is, is inventing our own natural disasters as, as we uh, <laughs> uh, continue to go. But this this is uh, this is a way that we're able to save a lot of resources by not having to have not having to fly people from one side of the state to the other state because they're the only ones that we that the government knows have that skill set. Well, there's somebody in their backyard. They just didn't have the uh, ability to be able to tap into them previously. Um, so I think that's one way that will save significant resources and help us respond in a much quicker way to these disasters. Tim, why don't you get another one, one, one example, where if you're already doing public participation traditionally with your face-to-face uh, -face, uh, meetings and, and, and charrettes or whatever, what we're seeing is that by just reallocating um, some of the resources or just adding a, a, a little bit to your existing budget, you can actually um, greatly increase your reach. And so, it's, uh, you're, you're, so the per, per participant cost goes, goes down, right? And you get, you know, so the three were you, so th and that way you get the, the per participant cost goes down and the, um, um, you, you can definitely engage a lot more people. Um, and yeah, eventually, I mean, if you do that successfully, it builds community, it builds trust, and you can, you know, um, use that for future uh, engagement or future um, problems that you're trying to solve. Check out CACS.org in a month. We'll have a lot of lists, a lot of examples. <laughs> Last question, because before we go to the, the audience questions, um, another uh, via the, the internet, um, sort of a comment and a question. Um, the uh, the Twitterer uh, wanted to convey that, you know, concern that, um, that oftentimes Gov 2.0 is either brought forward by um, an elected official um, or a, a, a CIO, uh, a, a person who's an expert in this, and that that's not good, that you can't, you can't trust those elected officials because they're flighty or they're term limited and they, they change their minds. And if they're the champion, the thing won't last. And the CIOs are problematic because they're too weird and people don't listen to them. So, so what you need is that you need to figure out how to get the buy-in and, and the person who's really interested be the, the, the bureaucrat, the sanitation supervisor, the paramedic, the cop, et cetera. And the question was, how do you do that? <laughs> you know, I, I think it goes towards um, a little bit of what April was talking about earlier in, and that, you know, it, it's about culture change and I think it's about starting somewhere. And I think, it, I think it's about picking off a couple of these projects that are transformative in nature, that can enable people to see new ways and new opportunities of how they perform their jobs, that have clear accountability and results to the public, that, that, that contribute to that goodwill. And you know, from there, I, you know, I do believe that, an extreme, that a strong CIO or CTO can be the most efficient way to implement technological change because they not only have the vision but also the resources necessary to implement those changes. Uh, but I, I think it's about starting somewhere, changing the conversation, changing the culture, and then I, I think that there are some tools. Uh, you know, one way is, is making sure that it's resourced and making sure that it's allocated. So figuring out a way to peel off part of 
a budget from somewhere, whether it's from a, you know, the tech department budget, whether it's from another budget, and, and setting that aside as innovation funding, and then opening that funding opportunity out to the organization so people can access it and have a way, regardless of who they may be, of turning their, their ideas into a reality for the organization. April, did you want a final word on this? I mean, did, did, in your survey, do you find things that were bubble up, that bubble up from some sort of, from a sort of line worker? Um, well, I mean, certainly that San Ramon fire app that we were talking yeah. about came from a real story of the, you know, yeah. the chief sitting there as his trucks went by thinking, I wonder what's going on over there. Well, right next door, somebody's having a heart attack and, you know, yeah. surely shouldn't we get a better solution than that? Yeah. Um, I think it can come from lots of different ways. It's local governments, I, I was, you know, pleasantly surprised to find they, they're thinking about this. They're talking about this at all levels and, you know, they want to learn and they want to know. And I think it's something they have a strong interest in. I think it will just, it's going to take some time and, and perhaps, as you say, some, some good successes that are out there that people can use as models, adopt a technology, see that it's not that scary, see that you know, it's not Armageddon in your, in your agency, and, and build on that or expand it out into other departments or you know, try things in a new way and just kind of creating a safe place to innovate. David, you want a quick final yeah, word? I was going to uh, come into this from the angle and also plug one of our partners who helped co-author the, the report, the Davenport Institute out of, out of Pepperdine, uh, which do trainings throughout the state for uh, city managers and local staff. And what they really talk about is that the, the, uh, the most needed skill in local governance or, or government officials, um, uh, from staff to actual uh, officials running for office, uh, is, is to understand how public engagement works and to prioritize it. Uh, really, again, shifting this, this paradigm from I'm the one who's supposed to solve the problems to my job is to empower you to be able to solve those problems. Um, and in some, in some cases, it includes you know, various uh, uh, technologies. And in some cases, it's really just uh, rethinking how you approach problems. Um, and I think that that's uh, one, of the, one of the great ways that, that, uh, that they're getting, they're, they're, they're preaching this. And, they're, and, and pretty much every time they have one of these, uh, these events, which I think they're growing to three or four or five times a year, um, they're getting more and more local staff throughout the state um, and members of ICMA and people outside of the state really looking at this and saying, uh, there's, something, there's something interesting happening here. You know, how, can, how can we learn um, how to be effective public engagers? The open government movement it just, you know, it just turned out to be something of global impact. Uh, this question, this discussion has been all around California, but just in September there was a commitment, you know, an uh, open government partnership commitment made by 46 countries. Um, what is the impact of this partnership being, you know, uh, in the government of the United States? And why are we not talking about transparency as the base for any civic engagement uh, application or program? And just the reach that it can have, not only in California, but everywhere in the world. I've been following the Open Government um, Partnership, and some actually say that it is a, a geostrategic, um, there's a geostrategic angle um, whereby the uh, you know, US is building uh, relationships based on good governance. Um, and, uh, um, you know, tries to take that as another um, or new way to, um, you know, build influence at the, at the end of the day. Um, in, in, in detail, um, there's going to be different, different efforts. I mean, some focus more on engagement. A lot of them focus on, on open data. Um, and if you look at the list of commitments that, that some of the countries have provided or are working on, um, there's some very exciting stuff um, 
uh, happening all around the, the globe. Very, very interesting. Very, it's use of resources, um, anti-corruption. Um, um, I think Brazil is working on open finance data, open, open budget data. Um, so very interesting things um, happening all, all around the globe. And the, the, the interesting thing is that you can actually learn from each other. I mean, you can you now get visibility into, into some of the projects that are happening around the globe, and you can take that on. That's a cool idea. I'm going to implement that at the local level or on the national level in my own country. Um, and I, yeah, in terms of transparency, um, I, I think it's very important, uh, even to the, the, the work that you know, public participation people do, is you know, it's all about trust and transparency. That's the, um, someone said, the gold, gold standard. You cannot have a success if you don't have trust, and that relies on being very transparent. I wanted to ask your thoughts on um, elections, and since those are largely a local matter, uh, how do you see sort of the next decade evolving with both internet and uh, electronic voting uh, as it relates to the efficiency and the integrity of the process? I think that will happen at some point. Um, we're seeing very interesting ex experiments in other countries. I think in the, the Baltic countries are, as in I think Estonia is doing some, it's almost the default uh, from what I'm hearing. Um, there is a lot of resistance um, it seems, um, though if you look at the fact that we're doing our banking online, I mean, it's not really that hard to imagine that we could do other things uh, online that are, that need to be secure. Um, I think that will come, and we're seeing um, both uh, the, the, the technology of uh, having, you know, secure private and all these other um, guidelines met, but also interesting new forms of voting mechanisms that are being worked on. There are some interesting tools that are, um, uh, when it's called, uh, are that fall under the liquid democracy um, 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 term, where you actually can have, um, um, you can actually allocate your vote to someone who you trust will make a smart decision, and that person <laughs> can allocate their collected votes to the person that they trust, and you can, you can play with some very interesting models that you can just not do in, in a non-electronic uh, form. And I think there's a lot of uh, room for innovation in, in just imp you know, innovating the um, election process. I wanna, but can I, let me try to refine the question, because I think you had a, a specific question on elections. And you know, we're in the only county right now in California where you can uh, register to vote online. It's actually against, well, it's now, you, it's permitted by law. And you can't, and you can't, you know, we, there have been attempts to do electronic signature gathering. Um, it appears to be against the law. The California Secretary of State opposes it. I mean, you see other states are actually seem to be ahead of us on this. I mean, why, why, what is the source of this reluctance in California, and can it really be overcome? The, the thing I, I was going to add is when I, when I was, uh, uh, I haven't actually followed a lot of the electronic voting uh, stuff in the last couple of years, but previous to that, it seemed like the closest we were getting was when, uh, was around the concept of how do we feel safe around our money? And so it was if we can vote at ATMs, that would probably be one of the best places because you can get a paper trail of your vote right at that point, and it's a place that we trust, and they're pretty much everywhere. Um, and so that was, that was the direction it was heading. But I think the trust in banks has now diminished to a point where it's actually below <laughs> government, and therefore probably to set us back several more years. How do, we, how do we make the significant civic governmental changes to deal with very, very complex global problems? 
what are we really going to do about climate change? What are we really going to do about uh, the divide between rich and poor on the planet? Ultimately, and those problems are accelerating faster than our technological innovations are. are. And so ultimately, we've got to get to a point to say, how does this move us into the place where we will really make these very difficult choices and decisions? I don't know the answer to it, but that's the question on my mind. An easy one. Who wants, who wants it? <laughs> I think one hope is that we can make some of these decisions less complicated. Because there are a lot of simple, easy decisions that we could also be making that make them less pressing in a certain sense. I think most people have gone to a DMV and dealt with how ineffective and inefficient the DMV is. Um, in my experience with government, there's a lot of areas like that where we could be doing the same things better um, and then start to have a more informed discussion about those big complicated issues that no, at the end of the day, are not going to be resolved by technology. Those are deep ideological divides. Um, but we're not in a good place to even have that discussion because we don't know what the bottom line is in a certain sense for what it costs to do the things that we're disagreeing about government should be doing. So transparency, civic engagement can get us, as you said, as a precondition to that place. But at the end of the day, that becomes a discussion of what do you believe? What does your neighbor believe? Do you agree or disagree? And technology can be a good platform to have those discussions, but that, that's human beings interacting and making decisions. And that's what technology is all about, doing all the parts that we shouldn't necessarily be doing so we can make those sorts of decisions. Right now, we don't spend our time on that in government. We spend our time on printing lots of paper, and we should be spending that time on something else. Speaking, speaking of, of, of time and what we're spending on, one thing that I, I definitely heard from, from that, and, and I agree with, is that in this, in this move towards government 2.0 and open data at large, there, there seems to be two different camps. There's an accountability and transparency count, which is much more looking back and making sure that, that things were made in the most appropriate way. In, in a large way, I think it actually adds to more divisiveness. I mean, I think it's important, but I think it does add and it sort of takes the line of gotcha. You know, it's like, I want to find that one meeting that he didn't tell us about so that I can go and get that elected official in trouble. And then there's the other camp, which is more of, of, of what I'd say the, the CPR app. And wow, we're just giving them all sorts of praise today. Is, <laughs> is, uh, is Chief Price here with us today? Um, but um, ultimately, you know, that's about using this data to create platforms that make government more effective, more efficient, um, solve problems and, and open up opportunities that government officials weren't even thinking could actually, you know, could, could be done by citizens. Um, and what I would say is if we are, you know, with, with the, the rise of Code for America and all of these, these great organizations, let's focus on the latter um, with, with, a, with a little bit more intention than, than just trying to play gotcha. Because it feels like sometimes it, it goes in that direction. Hi, I'm John Christensen. I'm the executive director of the Bill Lane Center for the American West here at Stanford. And really glad that you um, uh, came here um, to, to discuss this. And I think I want to follow up on, on this question and, and, and some of the answers and go maybe try to be a little bit more provocative and go into this, um, this, this a little bit more. And, and so when I, you know, I've been, I've been thinking, you know, a couple of things. I mean, one, you know, one of them is sort of, you know, TMI. You know, it's, maybe there's too much information, you know, and I, I look on, you know, I look at my, uh, at my ballots and sometimes the signs that are around the neighborhood. And I think, you know, I think a common reaction that Californians might have, you know, particularly in a general election is, you know, why are you bringing all of these decisions back to us? You know, isn't this what we elected you to do? 
Um, and it comes back to one of the things that Joe said is this kind of worry that, well, in an era of smaller government and less budgets, let's just count on the citizens to do more. And if we can just organize them. And I think that something you said, uh, you know, a, a little bit ago that, you know, politicians are evolving into something that's more like facilitators, you know. They're going to empower us to do things. And it's like, no, wait a minute. You know, I elected you to do some things, you know. I don't put it back on me. I've got enough to do, you know. Um, so, uh, so, you know, to, to, you know to, to, I suppose, bring this, you know, to a question, um, are there any examples that you could give, you know, of, of these things where, um, you know, it's maybe uh, empowering people to participate and have a voice that actually then moves government to do things that we want to do, that we want government to do, or that, you know, in a democracy, a majority want, uh, want government to do, rather than, um, you know, I I empowering government to facilitate us to do more for them. I actually want to push back on the, on the framing of that, which I, I think that's a, that's a very common feeling is, well, I elected you, why don't you go do your job? Well, that's what got us into this problem. That's ultimately what's got it. We, we've, we've moved to a place where we've abdicated all power, all interest, all feeling of, of responsibility. And we're sort of like, well, there, there's this professional class of politicians that know all the answers and they're going to solve everything for us. Well, when you get into that, you end up getting into the place where special interests end up having the, the power that they have because they're the ones who don't abdicate that power. They actually go out there and do it. So I, I, would, I, would, I would push against that in, in some sense. Um, and then on, on the other side, I think that we... I think that there, there are, I think appropriately used elected officials can actually engage citizens in a way that's not adding a burden on them. It's just making them think a little bit more about what's going on in their community and getting that feedback from them, especially through technology, getting, that, getting their interest in any sort of way that they can help share that so that they can make more informed decisions that are actually benefiting everyone. Um, uh, but but I, I'm, I'm concerned if we move into too much of a customer role because I think that that's, that that's really the paradigm of the last 20 years. I don't think that's the paradigm of the next 20 years, or else we're just going to be in similar problems to we're in today. I think that's true. I mean, there's certainly been plenty of polling that people are not very happy with the decisions their elected officials are handing down, right? I mean, that's, you know, that's PVIC documents it all the time. It's just the abysmal approval ratings as far as what governments are doing. And, and I do think that that the answer, you know, at least one part of the answer is having access to this information, having access to it, to the public data, to the public information, such that we can choose to be an informed citizenry, or we can choose to ignore it, I suppose, if we want, or some can choose to follow it and some can't, um, rather than uh, leaving it in the hands of a, a certain few who can feed us information as they see fit, and, and as you say, be guided by only certain kinds of interests, you know, sometimes opposing interests, but... Um, maybe not have just more of a, a, a general sense of the population and what they want. And if we, if, we take, if we take the information that is public information, is our information, and band together, then we can be a counterbalance to some of those very large, uh, well-heeled special interests. But it's more than just having the access, right? I mean, I mean, you know, President Obama can put his long-form birth certificate on the internet, and the governor of Texas can still say that, you know, wonder whether he's born in this country. I mean, it, it's putting it in a 
place or a space in some way where we're going to see it, right? We can't help but see it. There's that aspect, right? Right, and that might be easier to do in smaller communities, which is why you know certain local agencies have had success with their participatory uh, budgeting projects in San Mateo, in Santa Cruz, Santa Barbara even. Um, you know, it's a small community, so it's a smaller scale. And I think there are rules that you can put in place or, or that some of those entities have that they have found successful. Like when you register to participate in our process, you will use your real name so that you won't get any of this kind of inflammatory, you know, angry, crazy stuff like you might see in response to maybe a newspaper article. Or we're only going to consider at the council level the top 10 vote getters so that it's been vetted by our community and, and it makes some kind of reasonable sense to enough people that you know, we're, we're getting the, uh, the preferences of our community and we can move forward with that. I, I agree with that. I mean, the, by and large, it's, 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 it's more, it, it proves more successful to do these things at the local level in terms of you know, engaging people because it's less ideological often. It has more of a uh, concrete impact on, on how people live. And you can also see the outcome much sooner versus some things at the national level where it might take you know, years for anything concrete decisions to form, right? As a co-sponsor of this and a, and a true believer, the question was meant mostly provocatively, and so thank you for the answer. <laughs> Hello, my name is Uwe Steiner Jensen. I'm a Danish politician. We are here, 15 Danish politicians from local government. Thank you for your discussion. It's very interesting. I wonder, when you're looking into the future and um, creating a future local government, as we've, we've heard, you've talked about more civic engagement, et cetera, et cetera. Where do we think the decision makers are in, in such a situation? Where, where are they? Are they in the, the, the government itself? Who are they? Or are they out there? Uh, do we see the decision makers, are they, are they, are they uh, traveling around? Do we know them? Do we know the real decision makers? Um, as, as you see it. Could you comment on that just a little bit? Thank you. There's representative democracy, and then there's direct democracy, and then there's this you know, participatory democracy. And I, I think one thing that we, that we have currently going on is a critical lack of options to participate. You know, if, you know, really and truly for the vast majority of cities out there, if I want to even attempt to have an impact and at least have the option to have an impact, I need to know when my city council meets, I need to figure out where they meet, I need to be able to get myself to that meeting, I need to be able to walk myself through a fairly cryptic process of filling out a form and delivering it somewhere, I'm not exactly sure, and then I need to go up and present myself in public. And I, I just think that, that, is, that there are not enough options for people to be involved. You know, one piece of data I think is really interesting is uh, Salt Lake City in, in a one-year term using an online public comment forum and the information was directly fed to elected decision makers accumulated the equivalent of 88 hours of public comment on items brought to that elected body. And I think, I think that's really powerful. Did it have an impact on what, how the decisions were made? I'm not sure. Are those people who submitted that compact, that those comments in some way decision makers in that process? I think so. Uh, and, and, and so I, I, think it's, I think it's about options. I think there's a critical lack of those, and I think technology presents a great opportunity to really open up the field of options for people to become involved if, if they want to. Anyone else? I think in, in, in my terms, we re-envision what, what local governance looks like. I mean, I, I think that the, the role of the 
uh, of, the, of the politicians themselves, of the elected leaders, will, re- will really be around facilitator, but also leader. Leader in the sense of, of uh, as, as an executive director leads an organization, but the board is really the ones who ultimately adopt the broader policies. Being the one who, who steps forward and says, this is where we should go, and inspiring and, and encouraging and providing information that can help push the, the citizens. But the citizens need to have skin in the game and they need, to, they need to make sure, they need to be involved in the actual process. Otherwise, we're going to get into a place where we are now, which is, you know, it used to take 50 years before our, our, our Congress changed political parties. Then it happened in, what, 94 to 2006, and then it turned around in 2010, and it might turn around again. I mean, it's, it, and it's because people are just going to throw the bums out because they don't have skin in the game. They don't feel like this is their government. Government is something else, rather than local government really needs to be focused on governance, where we're all part of it. It's not an institution that's separate from us, but each of us have our own skin in the game. And I think that that... We have the ability to build that here in California, and I think technology will definitely aid it. Um, and I think I'm, I'm excited to, to, to build it with everyone here on this panel and everyone in the room. Tim? I, th- I think the, the, to me the idea of a government 2.0 is all about you know, harnessing the assets that our citizens can potentially um, bring to the table. And whether that is a you know, lifesaver or a, a watchdog or in decision making, you know, bringing in the, um, you know, understanding the values they bring, all the local knowledge they bring um, can be very, very powerful. And in some cases, yes, you may actually shift over the decision-making power to the people affected by the decision. That's rare. Oftentimes, it's a mix. It's more of a consultative um, role that we see most often. But ultimately, the goal is to make better, you know, better decisions, more sustainable decisions, reduce conflict, um, and I think um, there's a, you know, a lot that can still be done better than we were doing today. Taking a, a final comment, this is uh, your home campus. Uh, yeah, I mean, question. I've been spending a lot of time talking with elected officials recently, and I think that there's a lot of us out there that are frustrated with the decisions that elected officials are making, and rightly so, there's a lot of bad decisions being made, but I don't think that people go into government with the goal of messing us over or anything like that. They go because they want to make their community a better place, whether it's at the city or state or national level. Um, And what open government does is it allows them to work with their citizens again instead of against them and being bought off by special interests doesn't become as easy because information's out there about what decisions are being made. Citizens know about that. And that accountability is really a tool for elected officials at the end of the day to go back to serving people in a positive way. So let's, um, so thank you. Let's, um, let's continue the conversation online and Twitter. I should have said this before. Hashtag OpenGovCA. Um, you can find more about goldengovernance.org at newamerica.net, the Hear Us Now site. And your, and your website again is? CACS.org. Intellitix.com. And we've heard a lot of different ideas, different visions, but I think we had one very clear practical suggestion that was unanimously agreed on by the panel, and that is have all your heart attacks in San Ramon. <laughs> so um, with that, uh, let me thank you, and, um, and if you could join me in thanking the panel um, for this conversation. <laughs> <laughs>